HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I am talking today with Matt Russell of the Long Spoon Collective in Stoggerty's, New York. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello. Uh, my name is Mark, actually. That's fine. Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> I might have spelled I'm that wrong sorry. on everything. Thank but, you very much. Um, hello, Severin. How are you? I'm okay. I'm a little confused, but okay. Ah. Um. You want to give us a little introduction to the Long Spoon and why it's called Long Spoon? Sure. Um, the Long Spoon Collective is a group in Saugerties, New York, which is near the Catskill Mountains and uh, the Hudson Valley. And um, our work is in building different forms of infrastructure, um, both social connections and uh, physical infrastructure in terms of food growing and um, uh, food processing and uh, sharing and distribution and also housing. And mainly our work is in trying to create uh, a viable future for for our for communities. But um, uh, the Long Spoon name comes from uh, a uh, religious story about a, a rabbi who goes to, um, is brought by an angel both to heaven and to hell, and he sees in hell this enormous banquet which uh, everybody is sitting at, this you know, food everywhere on this huge table, but everyone is starving and emaciated and uh, struggling to eat because they have spoons strapped to their hands and they can't, very long spoons, they can't reach to their mouths. But the, um, the same exact thing is mimicked in heaven where people are at a huge banquet, but they're all very full and talking and lively. And it's because they've realized that with these long spoons, they can feed each other. And so the uh, idea behind the name is just that we have everything that we need already within our communities, and we can uh, redistribute that and share it with each other in order to uh, achieve a more viable way of living. Wow, this is awesome. So 
you're coming at this from a faith background, and I'm assuming that this is also considered social work or in some way a 501c, some kind of public benefit format. What's the, what's the structure of the organization? Uh, the structure is not a 501c3. We're um, totally uh, organized just by people who have decided in the community to reach out to others in the community and start to think about the needs that they had um, and realistically what our community would need to support itself, growing as much food as it needs, building houses that are beneficial and nourishing for the environment and for our environments rather than detrimental, and looking at public spaces. Um, so it's been completely organized. Uh, I don't know if the right word is grassroots or off-grid or off-books. Uh, it's completely trying to create uh, something that uh, is more based on the relationships that exist between between people and the things that they share, and not so much in terms of its um, outward projection of publicity or um, raising attention. So it's it's more locally formatted, but the goals are to uh, create models and examples of how people can do things that might help other people do this in many other parts of the world. And where did you get your inspiration from uh, to go completely, completely uh, anti-institutional, uh, mutual aid oriented? Like, where? What's the what's the backstory or process or like inspiration hmm. point? Uh, are I, you one of the founders? Um, there aren't really exactly founders. I'm one of the uh, uh, members who spends pretty much. Uh, every minute of every day working on this amongst many other people who spend their lives trying to help people. So I think it's just um, uh, more, let's, I guess there wasn't exactly a breaking point so much as, or a decision to move in that direction so much as analyzing the different structures of nonprofit or business or uh, farm or uh, what type of structure would benefit what we're trying to do best is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and discussing. And I think that what we've learned is that a diversity of structures is extremely valuable for this type of work, especially since we want to address a lot of different kinds of people, um, offer opportunities to a lot of different kinds of people, some who would like to live on a farm, work on a farm, others who would like to offer land to such a type of project, or others who would like to get involved with just distributing food. Or So there's so many facets that one type of organization isn't going to cover that, but more that the idea can permeate many different kinds of organizations and many different kinds of living. So can you talk a little bit about what the what the situation is in Socrates? You're saying um, it's a model that might be applicable in other places. Um, what are the conditions in Socrates that you're dealing with culturally, ecologically, in terms of the kids? Yeah, so Socrates um, um, is a post-industrial town, which I think uh, uh, qualifies as most uh, many places in America, I should say. It uh, used to be a quarrying industry of bluestone that supplied bluestone to the sidewalks of New York City all the way to Havana, Cuba. Um, that industry dried up in the turn of the century and was replaced by the cement industry, which also has dried up or been uh, uh, deport, uh, exported. 
So the uh, main income in Socrates in terms of taxes and uh, is real estate. It's in, it's, it survives on its relationship to New York City. Um, this poses a really interesting issue for the work that we do because the basis of it is in land use reform. The basis of our idea is that land should be valued for what we can do, creating healthy relationships to it and living and teaching and farming and building on it. Uh, and preserving it and protecting it, but not in selling it or valuing it as a currency. So ultimately, the beginning of our work is in going out and reaching out to the community and helping people to see the value of the land that they have and helping them, uh, I should say the true value, I think, in the, the use of it and the future viability of our community based on it, but not in the economic uh, uh, immediate value of it. And to start to see other structures like um, ways that we can share that land or use that land to take advantage of the opportunities on it. So this is um, echoes so much of the thinking that has gone on. Social reformers, including Henry George and Vino Bobave, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the land reform movements in Latin America. The um, a conversation that the format of commodity capitalism doesn't seem to apply to land, uh, or it seems like applying that logic to land creates outcomes that are antithetical to our humanity. And I wonder just a little bit, like, when you're studying that and and embodying that, first of all, what are the practical considerations, and, and how does that play out kind of against the habits of mind that we all have being trained by the way things are now and Mm -hmm. how your how like maybe that question is also very useful educational scaffold for young people to start to question and consider how many other understories uh lie underneath the overstory that that we have today yeah that's uh that's a very pertinent uh several questions i will try to to discuss, I think we've taken many different approaches to those questions, one of which is to go forward with a sort of agenda to try to uh, eliminate the barriers of entry into a more uh, sustainable way of living for more people. So uh, a lot of it has to do with taking uh, some things out of the equation that, that draw themselves into the relationship of value that's that's uh, conflicting to our humanity through capitalism. One of them is money. Um, Obviously, our organization and everyone involved uses money in different ways. Um, Some people own money. Other people intentionally do not own money. Um, Some people are more of a position of uh, using money, even if they don't own it, and uh, asking for it, receiving it, and passing it through our sort of loop of activity that happens. And I think that... uh, Money and moneylessness and our relationship to that is extremely critical to that question. Um, it's more than just a barrier to the relationships that exist, but the money actually in a capitalist society is a motivator. It's what leads people to uh, desire to do work. And instead, we want to reform where people are desiring to do the work that we need. Um, to grow food, to feed our families and our neighbors and people that we haven't met, and to create relationships that will matter in the future. So ultimately we're trying to um, 
create systems and remove barriers for people to live in ways that do not require them to work for money. Um, they would be able to work uh, more as an exchange with other people for their needs. Um, and the method that we've been doing uh, and been promoting is one of giving. So as opposed to one of barter or a let system or some other alternative to money, we've been thinking of it as the power of a gift is a much more powerful thing and can permeate much deeper than a simple exchange. So, so this is great. I mean, I really like how you say people who own money and people who just use money. Um, I was just visiting in Alaska a community um, that is an intentional community, and they they started out with four families, and they basically they started out with a set of intentions in the wilderness, you know, in a kind of a utopia kind of way, and they discovered that while they they as adults had some trouble, um, especially around releasing the power of, of private money, they called it private mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. Um, that the kids who were raised there, for them it was obvious. And I wonder if um, in, in doing this work and engaging in the, you know, intergenerational, um, intergenerational learning, if you've noticed um, how young people kind of latch on to or are affected by this different way of being. Um, Yeah, much of our work actually has been uh, intergenerational, and we do different types of work um, that have led to different groups getting involved. Um, I tend to find actually that we haven't had as much experience as we'd like with uh, younger people. There are a lot of kids and people are brought to our different events, but in terms of uh, educational programming, we're just starting now to work with uh, Saugerties High School. Uh, that's just a new thing, so that's really just kicking off, and we don't have the experience yet. I don't have the experience yet to say um, specifically of that. But what I have found more is that uh, in working with different generations, generations of, of people, um, there's a sort of hierarchy breakdown that's happening. I think for a lot of times when we have visits from colleges, um, Bard College sends students sometimes and um, Skidmore, and when they've come and done work, uh, it may be the first time in their life that uh, someone in their 20s is working with someone in their 80s, and the person in their 80s isn't telling them what to do. They're not the boss or uh, they're not the mentor or the teacher they're just a participant. So that's one of the first times that I think people get the opportunity to work with people of different ages and really see that we're, you know, we're actually learning all this together. In our organization, one year of gardening, two years of gardening, or a few years of building experience is um, as much as almost anyone has, except for a few more specialized uh, uh, builders and, and gardeners. So most people are learning for the first time or passing on knowledge that they're just experiencing. Um, Along with that, though, I've I've found that uh, because we've removed the need to or are trying to remove the need to be dependent on making money or making an earning, but instead spending our time to meet each other's needs, it's so much easier to spend hours and all day and all year learning and spending every activity learning. And uh, the amount that you can learn in a year is 
an enormous amount to pass on to other people in terms of all these activities, soil building, gardening, cr- uh, crafts and building, and clothing making and hunting, and things that uh, are usually funneled into a more uh, capital realm or a hobby realm. Can you make money on it or not? And they often have to take a specific form that's very strict in order to to be eligible in that case. Sorry, Hello? can you say um, can you can you say what your practical like next steps are, next workshops are that um, are coming up? Yeah, totally. We um, we're just closing up, uh, not completely, but on the la- later end of a series of food shares that we had, which were an, an, an sort of an experiment we were doing, uh, just a, just trying a model, which is um, we realized that we were working on about 11 gardens in Saugerties uh, at the same time, different people. Some of them had schedules and some were more maintained by individuals. And then we were bringing all the food together and redistributing it. So we reached out to other local gardeners and uh, hosted these food shares biweekly throughout the summer where people would bring their vegetables and we could see really the plethora of food that's being produced in Saugerties in small local gardens uh, in one place and then allow people to take freely from that uh, with their shopping bags and things like this, trying to make a more convenient uh, local infrastructure than a grocery store. Um, and... Uh, so we're finishing up that. Our next one is on October 17th, and it's at our uh, community garden. And if anyone's interested in uh, uh, coming or learning more about what we're doing, we have an email that you can email, uh, which is sagerdiesfoodshare at gmail.com. Um, it's S-A-U-G-E-R-T-I-E-S foodshare at gmail.com. And um, But mainly the next step in terms, not just uh, events, is that we're stepping up what we did this year. Instead of, uh, you know, 11 gardens producing food for the food share, um, we want to be more clear about how those gardens produce food. We're going to have three large uh, community gardens in Saugerties next year that are, have a rotation between them that all, all of their food is produced for the food share. And then we were reaching out to about 25 or 30 other gardeners in Saugerties to work with them to help improve their garden situation so that they can grow more for them and their families, and then also to include space in their gardens for us to grow staple crops that are specifically for the food shares so we can increase the amount of food coming to them to give out. And um, in the same way, we're sort of approaching people to start using the food shares as ways to share other things, knowledge, skills, crafts. Um, They can build furniture and bring it. They can make clothing and bring it. It doesn't have to be uh, entirely food. It's just based around that. Um, And I guess another large step that we're attempting to make next year is to see that we do a lot of system work, which is off-grid water systems, off-grid housing, off-grid solar panel systems, um, and then we do a lot of garden work, and we're interested, in, which includes building fences and water systems and planting and rotating. And um, we'd like to open up those ideas and really reach out to more people to get involved in that work, um, in uh, creating the infrastructure in Socrates. So that email again is an opportunity if people are interested in uh, building a sort of communal infrastructure here. That's you know, for our use, but more for the future to be used. We're trying to build things that will last and uh, 
and uh, have a, a positive impact. Well, it's very it's exciting. I mean, um, I read a, I read about some of the kinship networks and uh, definitely exchange or kind of more like reciprocal relationships that happened and were studied by anthropologists. Uh, you know, basically by socialist anthropologists in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And what happened in a crisis situation during their big transition when they had basically no food imports and no fertilizer imports, and there was a lot of, of hunger. And, um, you know, every scrap of food would get parsed out and exchanged and passed along through uh, these social networks. And to a large extent, that's the way that um, artists work, that's the way that activists work, that's the way that uh, people in theater work, that's the way that farmers work. There's mm-hmm. already a lot of different communities who are very familiar with uh, these kinds of exchanges and, and non-formal um, engagement on goods that are needed and shared and could be, can be shared. There's a really cool platform it's an online platform that tries to hold some of that conversation. Um, it's really strong in New York City, but it is also other places. It's called OurGoods.coop. Mm-hmm. Have you come across that? Yeah, I, th- I think I have looked at that before. It's pretty exciting. Um, you know, obviously, my goal is always how can I do the most sharing possible without, you know, using the Internet. Uh, and, you know, I just was in another conversation in Alaska about food stamps and mm-hmm. the challenge that these swipe cards present that, you know, people who want to, you know, accept food stamps have to have these expensive machines and then the expensive machines break. And, you know, you really, at the end of the day, it sounds like a piece of paper would not be such a bad idea. But yeah. um, I wonder if you can just briefly reflect on, um, like, the it's, why are you starting with food and craft, and why are those sectors the most um, accessible for people to start experimenting with different ways of relating? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, that uh, we definitely have uh, sort of intentionally focused on food and, and building and craft and what goes through that, and I think that... Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, sort of taking on, uh, for me at least, I shouldn't say for everyone in the organization, but for me it's recognizing that uh, those are movements in themselves that are happening. There is a return to uh, probably because of the unfortunate uh, enormity of how much uh, food is being produced in unhealthy ways for the environment and for our bodies, and also uh, in terms of building, how much of it's happening in a very unhealthy way, and that being a uh, direct relationship with the capital value in doing that and not with our bodies or with the environment. And I think that there's already a movement to uh, do this, to grow our own food, and to uh, learn how to build and build our own spaces and community spaces. I think that what we're jumping on, which is is that uh, we can do this, and we can actually do it only if we do it together. There's uh, the desire by a lot of people to take the opportunity when it comes and 
buy land or hold on to land and say, well, now I can do what I'd like. I can grow some food and I can uh, sell it maybe or I can farm on a small scale or a medium scale or I can build my own house. Uh, That isn't going to change uh, the way in which some people have and other people don't, but we still have enough food in the world. There's a lot of food being grown in the world, but it's not being grown well and a lot of people aren't getting access to it. And that is going to be possible to change if people see that if they work together, they aren't restricting other people. I think that desire to I'll separate and I'll remove is actually uh, just an illusion. They're not removing themselves. If you grow your own food and you build your own house and you live on your own property, if there's any way in which you've Uh, used a system that includes exploitation of another person or the environment, then you're in a direct relationship with that person or people involved in that. Uh, Just as much as we want to be in relationship with our neighbors and people around us and people that we want to help. Uh, So we're just trying to change, take that existing movement of food and building and shift it into something where it actually does make a serious change um, a social justice change, something that can actually be spread and reach out to people who don't have opportunities like this, um, as opposed to just being a, 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 a sort of a craft movement or a farming movement that reaches people who have the money or opportunity to to access that. Well, I'm super grateful that you come on the radio and talk about this, and I hope that people who are in the Hudson Valley area who hadn't heard about the Long Spoon Collective. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you all for listening, and I hope to talk to you all next week for another episode of Greenhorns Radio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 